0: I know words, I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hey, welcome back everybody. If you don't know where you are, this is the pedaling podcast and I am your host the voice and soul of so-called fiction Johnny the Gentile Profita and it is Saturday I know I promised or I tentatively promised a Friday episode what I forgot at the time was that yesterday was my old man's birthday and I forgot that I was going to be celebrating that with him and I just didn't have time to get around to doing the Friday episode, but it's Saturday. You're still getting your third episode this week, so I don't want to hear about it. Part of the reason I didn't have time to get an episode done was we were planning on having like an early dinner out at this Greek restaurant, Mykonos, which is in Niles, I think. it's uh, For those of you not familiar with the Chicagoland area, it's a northwest suburb of... Uh, Chicago it's about you know 30 minutes away from where I live normally and so we were gonna go there and he's uh, my parents and my sister and my nephew were coming down from uh, Milwaukee it's almost like a halfway point so where we meet in the middle it's probably more like um seventy thirty and closer to uh chicago maybe sixty five forty five something like that uh sixty five thirty five I could do math <laughs> um anyway, part of the reason i I ran out of time was because it snowed yesterday it snowed yesterday for the first time in a while. It was a pretty bad storm while it was going on. It's very windy, well, it started snowing in the afternoon, about two o'clock, something like that, maybe I think I noticed that it was snowing and by the time it, it was um, time for me to leave around you know, five, the, there was like a couple inches of snow on the ground, and it's rush hour on Friday. And traffic was at a standstill. And, and it was unbelievable to me how long it took me to get to this restaurant. Well, what's normally a 30-minute drive, even with tra- like, say, rush hour traffic, maybe it's like 40. 45 minutes. It took me almost two hours to drive there. Why? Why did it take me almost two hours to drive there? Well, because none of these streets were plowed. None of them. I drove, I I forget how long in, in terms of mileage this drive is, but like I said, half hour drive. So it's a pretty substantial drive. I took so many different streets. I was driving, bobbing and weaving all through Chicago, trying to get out of this city. And do you know how many, uh, many uh, snowplows I saw operating the entire time, there and back, how many snowplows I saw? One. I saw one snowplow with its shovel down actually plowing a street, it was, and it was doing a side street. That's it. None of these major streets were plowed. The expressway wasn't plowed. Even when I was coming back at like 10 o'clock at night, at 9.30 at night, something like that, nothing had been plowed. It had been snowing for eight hours. Nothing had been plowed. Nobody was doing anything. So I don't know, where are all these tax dollars that we pay to go to build and maintain these precious roads that every single statist is always proclaiming when I say things like taxation is Oh, who will build the roads? Well, who's going to plow the goddamn roads? How about that? none of these tax dollars I pay go towards maintenance at all. I mean, this is Chicago. It's January. It's not like we weren't expecting this storm. It snows in January. We knew this storm was coming all week. They kept talking about it this weekend, you know. Uh this big storm's coming in. So so why wasn't anybody plowing anything? I did see another snow plow going. It was plowing a parking lot. A private parking lot. But, you know, I'm sure that the the owners of the store were like, well, we want people to be able to park in our parking lot, and so we, we want customers to come in. We better get this plowed. So they had a guy plowing their parking lot. Meanwhile, we're bumper to bumper on these government roads. Nobody can get anywhere. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, what, what do I think? 40% in taxes now, at least? By, by the time all is said and done, they've stolen... 40% of my money, and I can't even get a street plowed. Unreal. Unreal. Anyway. Once I actually got to the restaurant, and it took my parents even longer, it took them almost like th- th- three hours to get from down from Wisconsin. Uh, once we got to the restaurant, I had a great time. <laughs> Greek food, uh, you know, it was great. I had the braised lamb, drank some uh radides. It was a good time. Uh, food was really good. It was good to see everybody, but man, did they try to ruin my old man's birthday by not plowing these roads? <laughs> He's going to rue the day he decided to, to drive down for that. But eh, maybe it was worth it. I don't know. Anyway, I'm kind of excited about today's episode. The reason I'm excited about it is, well, I, I, I'm, I've always been interested in the topic. And I think it's a very complicated topic. It's, it's hard to explain a lot of these concepts. And so it's going to be a challenge for me to break all of these aspects of the economy down into a way that's palatable and understandable for the average American person. And that's something I take pride in doing, and, and hopefully I can be successful, because it is very important that everybody understands what's going on with the economy, what's going on in our financial system overall, And hopefully a lot of these really complex, confusing, intimidating topics, I can make them a little more approachable and give you a foundational understanding of these things so that when you hear these topics come up in the news or whatever, you know what's going on. And maybe you know how to protect yourself against a lot of these hazards that I see later on coming up uh, down the road. And you know, you might have to, if this is the first time you're being introduced to a lot of these concepts or a lot of these economic issues, you may have to go back and listen to this more than once. That's okay. That's okay. There is going to be a tremendous amount of information crammed into uh, the next 45 minutes of your life. And if you have to listen to it twice, do so. Three times, fine. The other reason I'm so excited about this is because I think there's a tremendous amount of value in what you're about to listen to. And, and I hope that I, I, I can convey the message clearly and understandably so that everyone listening can, can really gain a lot of value from this episode. So, um, the catalyst for all of this, and I teased it in the last episode, was Larry Kudlow coming out a few days ago talking about how Donald Trump is preparing Tax Cuts 2.0. And this is, you know, his little bone to throw his constituents before the election and an election year, you know, late summer, these tax cuts are coming. So he'll have something to point to, to show how great he is. Another tremendous thing that Donald Trump did for all of the people out there was he gave them these tax cuts, right? And we've got the stock market at all time highs. It just crossed the 29,000 mark, which is unreal, just incredible. And this is all supposedly evidence of a great economy. And Trump's going to be touting this for the next eight months or whatever until the election. He's going to be pointing to how great the economy is doing, stock market at all-time highs. I gave you these tax cuts. And it's going to be interesting to see how these tax cuts play out with the voters. Because, you know, Democrats demonize tax cuts. Oh, you're just letting the rich the rich get richer, And um, all these companies, they're not paying any taxes, and Republicans champion them. They, they, They love to say that we're giving you tax cuts. The Democrats are actually running on increasing your taxes. Bernie Sanders has admitted that in order to pay for all of these socialist programs, they're going to raise taxes on everybody. I mean, Bernie has admitted this. Everybody's taxes will go up, but you'll get more benefits from the government, so it will more than offset the increase in taxes. That's his argument. Elizabeth Warren and the, and the Bidens of the world say we can just tax the rich a little bit, you know, 2%, 2 pennies, or whatever her thing is. Here's, here's the big problem with a lot of these tax cuts, especially when the Republicans do them and they tout this as this great thing that they're doing for everybody. Because right now, the deficit, the U.S. deficit last year, this past year, 2019, was over a trillion dollars. Okay, so that means that the government spent $1 trillion more than they took in in tax revenue. Actually, if you look at the national debt, it went up by $1.2 trillion. So the real cost of all this government was actually $1.2 trillion more than the government took in in taxes. Okay, they're taking in about $3.5 trillion in taxes, and they're spending four and a half, roughly. roughly. Okay, that is incredibly unsustainable. I mean, when Obama had trillion-dollar deficits, it's all the Republicans could talk about. They were shutting down the government over the irresponsible fiscal situations that Obama was putting us in, right? And now they, they champion them, and they want to cut taxes and increase spending. That's the, that's the problem that all these Republicans have. They cut taxes and increase spending, and this is supposed to work out somehow, which is insanity. I mean, how are we going to pay for these tax cuts? If you don't cut government spending, what happens? We're not decreasing government spending. We're not shrinking the size of government. In fact, we're spending more than the year before. We always do. The spending always go up. It's built into their budgets. A 10% increase across the board, or whatever it is. Each one of these little uh, areas of government have a built-in increase in their budget every year. So where is this money going to come from? They like to claim that since rates will be lower, the government will take in a larger dollar amount in tax receipts because there will be more economic activity due to the lower tax rates, right? They will get a smaller percentage of a bigger economic pie since the tax cuts will fuel all of this extra economic growth that won't take place with the high rates. They'll take place with the lower rates. You know, so there will be companies that make more and more money, and even though their tax rates are lower, they're paying a lower rate to the government. They're actually giving the government a larger sum of money. Does that make sense? So the government will take in more money even though the rates are lower. We saw this happen when Bush had his famous tax cuts. So there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that to an extent. But it's not infinite. Okay? There is a point where the rates are too low that no amount of economic growth can really compensate and get you back to the level that you were receiving when you had the higher tax rates. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? That's what's referred to as the Laffer curve. Okay? There is this point at which, or there's a rate, there's a certain tax rate where you maximize the tax revenue to the government. Anyway, the problem is, and this is what happened under both Bush and Reagan and pretty much any Republican that always talks about um, how we're going to cut tax rates and it's going to fuel economic growth and all that stuff, they increase spending. And that's a recipe for disaster. Even if they end up taking in more money than they did under the higher rates, or maybe even just as much money as under the higher rates, it never accounts for the increase in government spending. So what do they do? How do they pay for all of these deficits? Well, they print the money to cover the difference, or they borrow from future generations. That's all they can do. And a lot of times, they, they print the money. They, they create inflation, okay, which is often referred to in libertarian circles as a hidden tax. And why is it a hidden tax? Well, because you end up paying for the increase in government spending through the effects of them inflating the money supply. When you inflate the money supply, when you create all this inflation, you have more dollars in circulation chasing the same amount of economic goods and services to buy. So the prices go up. The effect of inflation is increased prices. And that's an important distinction okay because now they like to change the definition around of what inflation is you'll hear the the federal reserve come out and government agency agents and like all these economists they like to say that oh there's no inflation inflation's at two percent or whatever and they get that number from the consumer price index which is a measure of the increase in prices over time i can't get into the uh, nuts and bolts of it but they measure the amount of inflation by the increase in prices of a basket of goods, essentially is what they try to do, okay? Now, there are a lot of problems with this, but I can't go into all of that. But that is not really the measure of inflation, okay? That's the effect of inflation. Inflation is an increase in the money supply. so the amount of dollars in circulation. The effect of that can be an increase in prices. It doesn't necessarily have to be an increase in prices. Prices could stay the same, but maybe prices were actually going to go down by 5%, and instead of the price of uh, a TV set going down 5%, it stays the same according to the government's way of measuring inflation. There was no inflation, when in fact there was a 5% amount of inflation. That's just one of the, the big problems with it. But in reality... When you fund tax cuts with inflation, you're not really getting a tax cut at all. They're just taxing you in a different way. It's a worse way. It's a more deceptive way that punishes the poorest people among us. The wage earners and people on fixed income, they're all punished by this. The people who save money, they're all punished and it rewards the risky behavior ...of the casino players on Wall Street, all right? And I, I've gone back and forth over this issue for for years now... ...because on the one hand, and I'm sure you're thinking right now... ...well, John, if you always say taxation is theft... ...shouldn't you be all for any reduction in taxes... ...and therefore a reduction in the amount of theft that's going on? And, you know, that's tempting to think that way. A lot of libertarians do view any decrease in taxes as a beneficial thing. But here's the problem. On the other hand, like I just mentioned, they are just creating excess inflation and guaranteeing tax increases in the future to pay for the current level of government spending. Even if we don't end up having to pay for the increases in government spending now through inflation, future generations, uh, your kids, your grandkids, they will have to. One way or another, this $1.2 trillion yearly deficit has to be paid for. They can either inflate it away, in that case, you know, we could end up paying for that right now, you and me. Or maybe that inflation rears its ugly head later on down the road, and your kids have to pay for it. Or maybe they have to just increase taxes on your kids and your grandkids to pay for all of this government debt that we are racking up right now. It's the spending. It's the government spending that's the real tax. They could put tax rates at whatever they want. In fact, they wouldn't even have to tax you because we have the printing press. They could, they could reduce income tax levels to 0% and we wouldn't have to sacrifice a thing except the value of the dollar because they could pay for everything by just running the printing presses. Spending is the real cost of government. Spending is the real tax. We have to pay for it one way or another. They can either pay for it through income tax and tariffs and things like that, or they can pay for it through inflation. They have two choices, but regardless of where they set tax rates, regardless of of, of whether or not they give you tax cuts, the spending level is what you're being taxed at. So you will be taxed at the same amount regardless of what they actually take from you in terms of the percentage of your income. So in a sense, to me, when I think about that, it, it seems like we're stealing from future generations. We get all the you know, supposed benefits of increased government spending right now. We get all these programs you know, that everybody loves to talk about, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Now they're talking about making uh, Medicare for all and free college and all that stuff. So we will get the benefit of that, and we force people who aren't even born yet to be stolen from in the future to pay for it. That, to me, is a form of aggression, and I can't support it. It's why I can't support any tax cuts if we aren't going to cut government spending, at the very least, commensurate with the the tax cuts. And I mean actual cuts, not these bullshit uh, cuts to the growth rate of spending that the government likes to trick you into thinking are actual cuts to government. We don't get to have our cake and eat it, too. Uh, that's not how this works. So these tax cuts, like the ones before it, are only going to drive our deficits even higher. Uh, we're already at trillion-dollar deficits, which is insurmountable. The The debt grew by $1.2 trillion last year, and we're going even higher. And this can't go on forever. At some point, these chickens will have to come home to roost. And the, the president always does this. He He was talking about how this was a bubble economy under Obama when he was running, we tend to give presidents way too much credit for the economy, right? When the economy's going good, oh, it's the president. It's everything the president was doing. They love to take credit for the economy. And when the economy going it goes bad, then it's like the greedy fat cats on Wall Street, right? And Trump's going to be out there now, what was once a bubble economy under Obama, Nothing has changed, but he's taken credit for it, and it's the greatest economy in history now. He's rebranded a big, fat, ugly bubble under Obama to the greatest economy in the history of the United States under Donald Trump. No doubt he will be out here over the next six, seven, eight months touting all of these economic accomplishments. But what did he really do? What does the president really have to do with the economy? Practically nothing. mean he didn't even give you the tax cuts that he always brags about okay the president doesn't give you tax cuts congress gives you tax cuts so congress gave you trump's tax cuts in his first term and if they do another round congress will give you the tax cuts not the president He, he doesn't even do that he just signs what congress puts in front of him so what can the president do to influence the economy it's negligible at best it's practically nothing he can manipulate it in the short term, you know, tease this China deal and try to goose the markets for a day or two, get a nice couple of hundred point tick up in the, in the stock market, or he can bomb Iran and send safe haven assets like gold and oil through the roof, and then he can cool things down and goose the markets again in the short term. But long term, the structural soundness of an economy has very little to do with the president. If anything, I mean, he can deregulate things, which Trump has been doing some deregulation, which is always a good thing, freeing up markets, freeing up people to act in their own self-interest. That's always good. But you can't deregulate and simultaneously bail out financial institutions. It's the same thing like with the tax cuts and the spending. You can't do those things both and expect something good to happen. You can't remove the market regulations, replace them with government regulations, and then remove the government regulations but keep all of the, the, the government-implied backstops and bailouts that prevent the market regulations from having any effect. Uh, again, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. And the problem with the little deregulation that we have under Donald Trump, when this bullshit economy that has been, don't get me wrong, completely, 100% engineered by the government and the Federal Reserve, this ridiculous economy that we have right now, when it all blows up, the government's going to come out and blame all of the problems that they actually created on the tiny bit of deregulation that we had in the markets and capitalism run amok. And the real culprits, your wise overlords in Washington, and the Federal Reserve, they'll escape all the blame. They'll have to take none of the responsibility. They will persist. And in fact, they'll enact more of the policies that got us in the problem in the first place. And they'll compound the problems that we have in the economy right now. They're only going to make matters worse. This is exactly what happened in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Congress came out and they formed one of their worthless, stupid committees or super committees to investigate what happened and what caused the 2008 financial crisis? You think they came up with the right answer? Of course not. What did these geniuses come up with? Well, obviously, obviously we had excessive greed on Wall Street, right? A greed and capitalism ran amok. That goes without saying, of course, from the government's perspective. All of a sudden, everyone just got extra greedy at the same time. Uh, okay, so that was one of the findings of the super committee. And the other main culprit, of course, was the repeal of Glass Steagall. Uh, you may have heard of Graham Leach Bliley, which is just the names of the congressmen that uh, penned this bill or whatever, sponsored this bill. So this committee takes a look at all the things that happened in the 2008 financial crisis and they found literally the one piece of financial deregulation that took place over the last like 20 years and of course that had to be the cause of it that was the main driver here you see we had a government regulation in place the glass-steagall act we removed that regulation from the markets with the graham leach bliley act and like 10 years later Something bad happened, so obviously it was the deregulation. I mean, what else could it be, right? I mean, neither of these things explains any of the crisis at all. This is just ridiculous. This is ridiculous, and it's not surprising that, of course, a government committee gets it 100% wrong. There were people predicting this financial crisis. Ron Paul, as early as like 2002, 2003, Peter Schiff, 2004, 2005, 2006, running up to this, this financial crisis, they predicted, the people from the Austrian School of Economics predicted this crisis to a T, to a T, right down to the last detail. And it had nothing to do with any of those two things that the government's committee came up with. I mean, first of all, greed is a constant, okay? We're all greedy all the time. There is a constant tug-of-war going on between greed and fear, all right? So you can't just all of a sudden get extra greedy all at the same time. Something must have happened to that incentive structure to throw that balance out of whack. All of a sudden, we, put, uh, we took everybody off the other end of the, the, the rope. The greed rope is still tugging, and we dropped like 90% of the people from the fear side. So the greed is taking over. We're no more greedy than we were 10 years ago, uh, than we are today. And then 10 years ago, we were no more greedy than we were 10 years before that. People are greedy. It's just that the fear of what would happen if you got too greedy was taken away by the Federal Reserve, by these government programs, okay? And second of all, Glass-Steagall, all that act did was separate commercial banks from investment banks, okay? And I don't want to get too technical here, but literally that had nothing to do with the financial crisis. The claim is that since these banks were no longer prevented from acting as both a commercial bank and an investment bank, and the difference between the, like a commercial bank, think of the bank you have your checking account, right? That you you deposit your money there, they take your money and they loan it out to businesses and things like that. An investment bank, they, they, they do investments. They, they do bond deals. They, do, you know, they invest in companies, and, and they, they take a lot of other, other risks in the market. Okay? And so we separated these things in the 30s. And then in the 90s, we said, ah, we don't need to separate them anymore. So they had this Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which partially repealed the Glass-Steagall Act. Okay? It wasn't even a full repeal. And the claim is that since they, took, they partially repealed Glass-Steagall, well, that allowed all these banks to get too big to fail. And that was the problem, which is just nonsense. The crisis would have taken place regardless, okay? The Glass-Steagall Act did apply to banks, right? And a lot of the mortgage-backed derivatives that, that were at the heart of this uh, financial meltdown were created and sold by banks, Subprime mortgages, though, which were the underlying assets of those derivatives, those were almost all, like the vast majority of them, were originally issued by non-bank lender. And none of those initial loans would have been prevented by glass steel. So it wouldn't have done anything to stop the underlying problem. On top of that... All of these investment banks, you know, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, who were all major players in the subprime mortgage meltdown, none of them ever ventured into commercial banking anyways. They were just investment banks, just as they were before Glass-Steagall was repealed. This is all just ridiculous. The root cause of the financial crisis was the subprime mortgage meltdown. And at the heart of that problem... Lies a, a, a few things. You have the Federal Reserve keeping artificially low interest rates at one percent for a couple of years following the two thousand one, uh, the two thousand two thousand one recession. You have uh, entities like the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which required. Uh, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to purchase more affordable, quote-unquote, mortgages, to encourage lenders to make loans to low-income and minority borrowers, all these government programs that distort the incentives in the market. And in order to meet those goals, lenders began to institute policies like foregoing any requirement for down payment assistance. You'd have these Ninja Loans. No income, no job, you just wrote down on a piece of paper how much money you made, and they never verified it, uh, they never did anything. And they, they would take unemployment benefits as a, as a source of income, all this ridiculous stuff. And again, the majority of these lenders were private mortgage lenders, not even banks. So Glass-Steagall didn't apply to them. And not to mention the government-sponsored enterpri- enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac Not only do they insure over 90% of the mortgages in the U.S., but they were buying over half of the subprime mortgages at the time leading up to the crisis. They created the market for them, essentially. Every bank knew that no matter how shitty the mortgage they were issuing was, that they would always be able to sell it to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They were buying these things hand over fist. They were guaranteed to buy them. That's the moral hazard. And if anything were to happen, anything bad were to happen, the government would step in and bail out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because they were government-sponsored entities. So all of the economic activity that was taking place that led to this crisis was created and perpetuated by these government programs that screwed up all the incentives, that took away all the fear in the market and allowed that greed to run amok. That's what caused capitalism to run amok. It was the government, government entities, government monetary policies, government creations that created all this moral hazard in the market and allowed people to exercise all of their greed without any fear of the negative repercussions. I mean, that in a nutshell is, I don't know how how long it took me to explain that. And what a surprise that the government committees found no wrongdoing on the part of the government, right? It was just that we didn't have enough regulation. <laughs> so, of course, now we need more. We need more regulation. And, and then we got Dodd-Frank, which was a 1,500-page banking regulation bill that had all sorts of crap in it. But then that effect is to make banks even bigger. Okay, so according to them, the, the problem was banks were too big to fail. And now we have this monstrosity this enormous government regulation that only big banks can comply can afford the cost of compliance can figure out how to deal with this stuff so all of the smaller banks start going out of business they get bought up by these bigger banks and the banks that were uh, apparently too big to fail in the first place had to be bailed out by all these taxpayers right remember the big bailouts well now they're even bigger thanks to additional government regulation So in the wake of that disaster, your wise overlords doubled down on the policies that caused it in the first place. Bravo. Mission accomplished, as George W. Bush once said. So um, where are we now, right? And what's going on here? Well, leading up to that financial crisis, as I mentioned, we had the Federal Reserve creating artificially low interest rates. I think under Greenspan, they got as low as 1%, and he held them there for like two years, okay? During that two-year time period, a lot of malinvestments were made based off of those artificially low interest rates, okay? And he held them there for about two years, and then he gradually started to ratchet them up. And what was the government's response in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis? They doubled down on all the policies that caused it in the first place. Oh, artificially low interest rates of 1% for about two years or something like that, which incentivized a lot of the house buying and pumped money into the stock market and caused all of these financial players to make irresponsible investments. Oh, w- well, okay, now we're going to 0% for 10 years. That That's what we just got through, was a 10-year period of practically 0% interest rates. And if all of that damage that led up to the housing financial crisis of 2008 was done with interest rates between 1% and like 4%. And most of it at 1% is where it was done. How much damage has been done over the last decade of 0% interest rates? And how do they even do that? How does the Fed make sure interest rates stay that low? They can't just declare it, right? So what do they do? And you'll always hear me talking about, oh, the Fed's artificially suppressing interest rates. They're keeping interest rates too low. How do they do that? Well, essentially, they buy government debt. They buy bonds. They buy treasury bills. And this buying, this constant buying by the Federal Reserve puts downward pressure on the interest rates of those financial assets. And they can buy them hand over fist as fast as the government can crank them out so that the rates won't rise. You see, if the Fed wasn't there buying, constantly buying, more than anybody else, there would be very little appetite in the marketplace for a Treasury bill that pays you no interest. Especially if, you know, the government's stated level of inflation is 2%, right? Uh, Why are you going to loan money at less than 2%? Why are you going to loan it at 0.15% when you're losing 2% to inflation every year? It doesn't make any sense. So the interest rate would have to increase until it got to a point where the market would be interested in loaning money at that price. And that's all interest rates are. It's the price of money, right? And that's why they're so important because the Federal Reserve is essentially price-fixing money. And we know what happens when you get price-fixing. You either get shortages or you get surpluses because there's no market mechanism to clear the two all right? So in half of every transaction, money's involved, right? Just about half of every transaction. Every time you buy something or every time you sell something, the other side of that usually involves money, right? So where does the Fed get all the money to buy up all this debt to keep the interest rates low? Well, they have to create it out of thin air, and that's all they can do. Sometimes I say they print the money, even though, Technically, the Treasury Department prints the dollars, but you get the point. It's just a turn of phrase. What, what the Federal Reserve does is, with a couple keystrokes, they just put money into the accounts of other banks. So if they're going to buy a Treasury bill from J.P. Morgan, that J.P. Morgan has an account at the Federal Reserve. All right, And so the Fed goes in, pulls up J.P. Morgan's account, and just puts, a, a, puts $500 million in it, just types in some ones and zeros, and then they take control of $500 million worth of government debt. J.P. Morgan gets the money, the Fed takes the, the asset, right? And this whole process, this whole process was what was called quantitative easing, okay? And this is the, the government's brilliant plan to mitigate the disaster of the financial crisis the fed bought something like 40 billion dollars a month in treasury bills and 40 billion dollars a month in mortgage backed securities something i think it was 40 and 45 i can't remember which was which with money that they created uh, with with a keystroke uh, out of nowhere that's what quantitative easing was the fed created money out of thin air and bought government debt and mortgage backed securities now why why were they doing this Well, they've come right out and said they wanted a wealth effect, okay? They wanted the wealth effect of people's financial portfolios increasing in value. They want to make people think that they are wealthier than they actually are because when people feel wealthy, when they see their investment portfolios increasing in value, they're more likely to spend money. And they think that's what grows the economy. I've talked about this before, so you have to go back and listen because I do not do these episodes in a vacuum, okay? You have to go back and learn why spending doesn't grow the economy. But let's just say they've got it ass backwards. They've got the economic cart before the horse. Spending is not what drives the economy. Savings and production is. You, you can't spend money on something that hasn't been produced first yet. But anyway, if you can keep interest rates low and you can stimulate all this economic activity, you know, people will buy new cars, they'll buy new houses, they'll take out home equity loans, all of this economic activity that's based on low interest rates, right? The lower the interest rate goes, the more attractive it is for you to buy a house or buy a car because it seems more affordable. They borrow and they spend and they create the illusion of economic growth. And as long as the rates stay low, well, you know, people will think that they can afford all these purchases. But as we saw in 2008, nothing stays low forever. And when those rates reset, all of a sudden, there's a lot of people and a lot of houses that they can no longer afford the payments on. So anyway, each month, the money supply during this quantitative easing process was increased by about $80 billion, okay? Okay. All of that money goes to the fat cats on Wall Street. It feeds into this system of economic inequality, right? This uh, the, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. The rich fat cats on Wall Street, they get all of that newly created money first, and they get to speculate with it in the stock market and the bond market. The Fed's balance sheet increases because they are buying all of these so-called assets. Like I said, you know, they give the banks money and the banks turn over the securities to the Federal Reserve. That goes on their balance sheet, okay? Their balance sheet increased from about $500 billion in 2008 to over $4.5 trillion, that's trillion with the T, by the time they paused QE. And I say paused specifically because they have not ended quantitative easing. And that's uh, part of the reason why the title of this episode is QE or not QE because they haven't ended it. In fact, this past September, they've come up with a new version of QE that I'll get into in a minute. But when all is said and done, when they finished Quantitative Easing 1 and then they went into Quantitative Easing 2 and QE 3 and then QE 4, when all was said and done the Fed had pumped in over $4 trillion in newly created money into the marketplace. And in other words, the Fed was monetizing the debt. They were taking all of the debt that the federal government was issuing and they were turning it into dollars and they were pumping those dollars into financial institutions, into the stock market, into the bond market. That's why prices skyrocketed. That's why the stock market went from, like, 7,000 in 2009 and the March lows in 2009. The Dow, I think, got as low as 7,000. It's now at 29,000. That's where all this inflation went. The, the plan was that at some point, the Federal Reserve would unwind their balance sheet, meaning they would sell off all of those assets that they had been buying from the other banks. They would sell them back to the marketplace pull all that money out of circulation and they would destroy it. And then there'd be no problem, right? Everything would be fine. It would be like it never happened. Well, here's the thing. The Federal Reserve cannot go from the biggest buyer of something to the biggest seller of something. In fact, nobody can do that without tanking the market. I mean, who's going to buy all that crap that the Federal Reserve was buying? All those toxic uh, mortgage-backed securities? Nobody wants those. And nobody can buy all those. Nobody has an extra $4.5 trillion sitting around. At least not at those prices, right? If the Fed goes from the largest buyer to the largest seller and floods the market with all these treasury bills and and mortgage-backed securities, the the price is going to fall through the floor. So the price that the Federal Reserve paid to buy those initial assets from the banks would be substantially higher than what they get when they sell them. And we're talking pennies on the dollar. So most of that money that they've created out of thin air would stay in circulation. They can't pull it out. If the Fed isn't constantly pumping more and more cheap money into the system, the stock market tanks. They've gotten our markets addicted to these 0% interest rates. All of these financial transactions can only take place at, at practically zero rates. It's all they can afford. So they've tried to unwind their balance sheet this past year, that, that's when they started to um, officially end QE and shrink their balance sheet. It was like uh, late 2018, early 2019. They started to gradually raise interest rates again. They started to sell back some of these treasuries to the markets. And we saw some pretty big drops in market activity. There were there were days when the market was down 1,000 points, 1,500 points in a day. They managed to shrink their balance sheet from about $4.5 trillion down to something like trillion okay Uh, that was as far as they could get before the markets cried uncle and we saw these markets cry uncle in september of this past year in 2019 when we started seeing overnight repo rates skyrocket to 10 percent now what the hell is an overnight repo rate right i mean what is that it, it repo does not stand for the repo man, the repossession man that's going to come and, and take your car away from you because you haven't been making the payments. Okay, <laughs> repo stands for repurchase agreement. So the repo market is often referred to as sort of like the plumbing of the financial system. It, it, the The entire system is dependent on it to a large extent. We're talking the transfer of $1 to $2 trillion every night in this marketplace. But nobody really thinks about it. Nobody really knows what's going on in there until something goes wrong with the plumbing, right? Anybody who's owned a house knows that you take all these things for granted until something goes wrong. So what is the the repo market? How does it work? It's essentially a, a way of getting liquidity to banks and institutions that need it on an overnight basis, sometimes it's two days, and there are some longer-term ones, but the, we're going to focus on the overnight repurchase agreements, right? So take a, a regular sort of loan, like if you go into a pawn shop, right? And let's say you, you need, let's say you owned a company, all right? And you have to make payroll tomorrow. You got to pay all your employees, but you don't have enough cash on hand. Now, you have uh, a really fancy car, okay? One of these uh, collectible cars. So you go to a pawn shop, you know, you go to those guys in Vegas. (laughs) You go see uh, Rick and Corey, right? And you you go to their pawn shop, and you're like, I need uh, $50,000 because I have to make payroll. I got to pay my employees Mm -hmm. this week. And I've got some money coming in next week. I I just, um, I need the money by tomorrow. And then two days after that or whatever, I'm going to have all this money coming in from one of my deals and I'll be able to pay back the loan. And so the pawn shop is going to ask for collateral on that loan, right? And you say, well, I have this really fancy collectible Corvette or whatever. It's worth $75,000 easy. I, I I will post this as collateral and... The pawn shop will take possession of that car, and they will give you the $50,000, and you will just have to pay back that $50,000 plus interest on a given date, right? Um Pawn shops, I think you can do it whenever you want, but let's say the contract was for the following day, because that's what happens in these repo agreements. They're overnight lending, okay? So, A lot of these commercial banks who are generally flush with cash from depositors, they have a lot of liquidity, right? And say um, a hedge fund or an investment bank or something like that, a broker, they have all of these assets that they've been investing in, but they don't have a lot of cash and they need that cash. They need that liquidity To fund their overnight operations, they got to pay their employees. They have to get this bond deal done. They got to invest in this. They got to invest in that. They have to keep the company rolling overnight. And they got other investments that are maturing the following day, which will give them some liquidity. But until that point, they need to borrow some money. That's when they go to the overnight repo uh, market. Okay. And the investment bank goes to the um, commercial bank. And they have this repurchase agreement. So they're going to borrow money at a really low interest rate because it's really low risk. You're keeping it overnight. Like, what could happen? JP Morgan's not going to go under by, you know, 8 a.m. tomorrow, right? So the rates were really low. We're talking under 2%, all right? So they get to borrow all this money for a really low rate, and the bank, who wasn't going to make any money, uh, Uh, who wasn't going to earn anything on that money that was just sitting in their accounts, gets to loan it out practically risk-free and make a little money on the side, right? Everybody wins. So this market is massive. Like I said, $1.2 trillion or $1 to $2 trillion every night is sort of changing hands back and forth between these banks. Well, all of a sudden in mid-September, And there are a couple of reasons for this. I don't have time to get into this. This is already kind of going to run long and get too complicated. It doesn't matter why. Just say for underlying structural problems in the economy, all of a sudden these commercial banks, they're not willing to lend that money overnight to that investment bank at such a low rate. They want more than 1.5%. In fact, they wanted more than 2%. Some nights they wanted more than 3%. Eventually it got as high as 10%. And what happens at those, at, at those rates? Nobody's borrowing and nobody's lending. And this entire financial market sort of grinds to a halt. Things lock up. Those investment firms can't make payroll. They can't get the liquidity they need to keep their operations going. And they could go under. They're, they're in very precarious situation. So what happened? Well... The Federal Reserve stepped in and they said, oh, don't worry. We're going to provide the liquidity to to the marketplace and the overnight repo market. If they need 80 billion dollars overnight, we will supply it at a very low interest rate. Don't worry if the commercial banks won't loan to you, we'll loan to you. So now what's happening from an economic perspective is the Fed is back in the QE business. They're they're back to creating money out of thin air and injecting it into the financial, situ- uh, financial markets, just like they were doing before. That's the whole QE, not QE thing. They keep saying, the Federal Reserve keeps coming out and saying, oh, this isn't QE, this isn't QE. Well, what is it? What is it if you're creating money out of thin air and pumping it into these financial institutions? It's a distinction without a difference. Th- this is just QE5, but they don't want to call it QE5 because if they have to go back to QE after they said they were going to stop QE and shrink their balance sheet, well, then they have to admit that this whole thing is screwed, that this whole experiment in quantitative easing, which had never taken place before. This is the first time we've done this. Well, this whole experiment's failed. If they can't stop it and they can't unwind their balance sheet, and the second they tried, uh, they have uh, financial gridlock and, and... uh, uh, potential mayhem on the horizon, the markets are going to melt down and they have to go back to the QE? Well, then we're just going to have QE in perpetuity. This is the new normal. Our markets can't function without the Fed pumping in a bunch of cheap money. But this is where we are now. The the markets are at all-time highs. The markets keep going up and up and up. 29,000 and counting on the Dow. But how's the economy actually doing? If you look at the companies that are in uh, the, these um, financial markets. Forty percent of these companies are losing money. Forty percent, forty percent of the companies that are in the stock market are are, are losing companies. They're losing money, and not just a little money. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars a year, sometimes a quarter. I mean, does that sound rational to you? Does that sound like it's a market based on strong fundamentals? No. Strong economic principles? No, absolutely not. There is a major disconnect between the economy and these markets. If there wasn't, we wouldn't be seeing people investing in companies that lose money. And remember, markets and the economy are not necessarily the same thing. And this is a perfect example. 40% of companies losing money, but people continue to invest in them? Why? Why? What the hell are they thinking? Who invests in a company that doesn't make any money? And not only that, loses hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I mean, are they insane? Who are these people? Well, it all has to do with all the cheap money that the Federal Reserve is creating out of thin air and pumping into this system. They're getting trillions of dollars for practically free. Overnight if they want it, longer if they want it. So why not gamble? Why not gamble in, these, in the markets, in the casino? Every time the markets hint at going down, at purging this system, the Fed steps in and throws more money at it. Hey, have some more, go nuts. Why not? Party on. And all these financial institutions are drunk on this free money. I mean, who wouldn't be? You get to make all sorts of commissions on these trades and the stock prices keep going up because we have more and more dollars Chasing the same amount of financial assets to buy. Or roughly the same, right? That's where all the inflation is. That's why the, the prices keep going up. They're making money hand over fist in the process. And these Wall Street guys are thinking they'll be able to sell out uh, before the bottom drops out of this market. Some of them will. Uh, no doubt. Some of them will for sure. But what's going to happen when all this capital dries up, when the Fed takes the punch bowl away. Because, you know, uh, George Bush famously said, you know, Wall Street got drunk when he was trying to explain away the financial crisis. Well, yes, Wall Street did get drunk, but it's the Federal Reserve that's spiking the punch bowl. So what's going to happen when they take the punch bowl away? Because at some point, they're going to have to. They just do. It's either that, or they completely destroy the value of the dollar. They've got two choices. Uh, how, how do you like your choices, right? I mean, and we're talking, when I say destroy the value of the dollar, with the amount of debt that they create, we're talking Weimar, Republic, Zimbabwe, Venezuela-style inflation. And if they don't prop up the stock market and the bond market with all this cheap money, well, then these companies will go under. All of these companies that are losing money, they're going to go out of business, and, and people will lose a ton of money. Markets getting cut in half is not out of the question at all. We we saw that happen in 2008. Easy. This is the corner that the Fed has painted itself into. Does it save the stock market and its wealth effect? Or does it save the dollar? Because it can't do both. It's impossible. Right now, the, the dollar being the world's reserve currency is probably one of the few things staving off a complete collapse in its value. But that can change. And what I mean by reserve currency, I don't know if I've gone over this before on the show. Oh, God, do I have time for this? <laughs> Are you guys still with me? Have your eyes glazed over yet? The reserve currency is, well, when every, any transaction takes place internationally, when, when countries buy oil or they buy uh, things from other countries, all of those transactions take place in dollars. Okay, so this creates demand for our dollars. Like, uh, if if France wants to buy some oil from Saudi Arabia, that whole transaction has to take place in dollars. So France actually first has to buy dollars from us, and then they can buy the oil. All of these transactions are taking place in dollars. They have to, because we have reserve currency status. But uh, there's nothing written in stone that says the U.S. dollar has to be the world's reserve currency not the first reserve currency and it won't be the last reserve currency The in fact the only reason we are the world's reserve currency is because we used to be on a gold standard the US had a gold standard and the US was this economic powerhouse and what essentially happened was the US goes to all these countries and says hey listen you know the dollar is, is backed by gold 100% you know it's redeemable in gold so why don't we make the dollar the reserve currency everybody can transact in in dollars and it's backed by gold so if you ever need to redeem your gold you just give us your your dollars we'll give you your gold dollars is good as gold so we ended up essentially tricking the entire world into using our currency to transact in all these things so you know it simplifies a lot of the economic transactions because you're not doing million different currency exchanges to sell a barrel of oil or uh, buy a Boeing you know some sort of jet or whatever anything that 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 takes place on an international level you don't have to do all these financial transactions you just use dollars so it's easier right and the dollars are as good as gold well in 1971 we went off the gold standard and we essentially uh, defaulted on that obligation to give people gold for their dollars but this and this was supposed to be a temporary thing and it's now persisted for about 50 years. But who knows, maybe we'll go back and it will be in fact temporary just ran a lot longer than Nixon had uh, initially thought. But anyway, so even though we went off the gold standard which was the impetus for using the dollar as the world's reserve currency in the first place, for some reason we remained the the world's reserve currency even though we can now create as many dollars as we want out of thin air. And one of the things keeping demand for these dollars high is that people are forced, and essentially countries are forced to transact in dollars. Um, but they don't have to do that forever. If we don't save the value of the dollar or what's left of it, we could lose that status and a lot of our power and influence overseas, our, our empire. A lot of that goes away if we don't have this reserve currency that we can beat people over the head with you see right now the u.s. is still the world's largest economy we are a dominant player in the worldwide economy and this means that the vast majority of international trade and cross-border financial transactions they take place in u.s. dollars the u.s. is the center is at the center of global commerce and it's all because we have this reserve status a reserve currency status That's what makes the dollar such a powerful weapon for our government. The U.S. government can threaten foreign countries with nearly total financial collapse if they cut off their access to these dollars. But we may be overplaying that hand because the more we destroy the value of the dollar, the more other countries are incentivized to avoid using it in international transactions and cross-border transactions. There's already... Things going on between China and Russia where they're not using the dollar to transact in. There's nothing set in stone that says it has to be dollars. So there's a lot at stake here for the United States Empire if they don't save the dollar. They could lose all of that foreign influence that they love to throw around across the globe. But if they don't save the markets, well then we're talking about a major recession. Bigger than the Great Recession. In fact, they're going to have to rename the Great Recession to something else because this one's going to blow it out of the water. It has to. It's just such a bigger problem. We just blew air back into the bubble that was created leading up to 2008. And it's coming because all of these structural imbalances the Fed has been creating for the last 10 years with those artificially low interest rates, the longest-running technical expansion in the history of the markets, all of these malinvestments people have been making thanks to the moral hazard created by the government, well, that all has to be unwound somehow. It has to. A lot of these companies, and we can start with the 40% who are currently losing money, they all go out of business. All those people that worked for those companies, they're now unemployed. Even companies that are currently making money will start to lose money and go out of business. That means more unemployment, That means less economic activity, and it means even less tax dollars taken in by your bloated government to fund itself. They, of course, won't cut anything. Government never cuts anything. It only gets bigger. So that means bigger government, bigger deficits, bigger budget shortfalls. The national debt continues to skyrocket. The unfunded liabilities... Uh, all these promises of entitlements like Social Security that I went over in last week's episodes, well, they become even more insolvent. You've got massive unemployment, so there are less people paying into it, right? Wages will have to go down because uh, the economy is contracting. So even the people that are paying into it are paying less into it because they're making less money. If people are still retiring, though, uh, even at record rates now, because the baby boomer generation is retiring. And and the younger generations, people my age and even younger, well, they're having fewer and fewer children. Kids are staying in school longer. Longer now, thanks to the, the government destroying the value of a college degree. It's all connected. Because it used to be you could do something with a high school diploma. Now you need a college degree, and then after they got everybody a college degree, well, now you can't differentiate yourself. So you need a master's degree. You gotta stay in school a little longer. Uh, Maybe now you need a PhD to uh, differentiate yourself. And so all these kids don't start working until they're like 27, 28 years old. So There's 10 years of economic activity that's not taking place because they're in school the whole time. I mean, I could go on and on about all these problems that all seem to be coming to a head In this decade, remember my episode on the fourth turning, but it's all related, it's all connected. The, The truth is we need another recession, badly. We badly need to unwind all of this crap and purge the financial system of all this gunk, and we need to get back to an economy that isn't funded by debt, that isn't addicted to cheap money. The recession is the only way to do that. Right now, we're basically on monetary methadone, We're like heroin headaches, all right? Our economy is addicted. Each dose of monetary stimulus is our drug. But the more you take, the more of a drug you take, the less effect that drug has on you until you have to take so much, you you basically overdose and kill yourself. And we're getting to that point. And now we have the Fed trying to wean our economy off of those drugs, off of that heroin, with monetary methadone because... They don't like seeing us go through withdrawal symptoms. They're like the worst rehab center of all time. Every time the economy tries to cut out the drugs, go cold turkey, and actually get healthy for a change, they step in and jack us up full of more of the drugs that are making us sick in the first place. And it makes us feel better for the time being. Everything's great when you're high. We're high right now. Everything seems awesome, right? Markets at all-time highs, greatest economy ever. Everything's tremendous, thanks to Donald Trump. But those drugs are going to wear off. Eventually. They have to. And the hangover and the withdrawal symptoms from this last dose of monetary methadone will be that much worse because we've been prolonging the disease. So we'll need a larger and larger dose to keep us high for as long as possible, and at some point, our economy will die. It has to. And it, like I said, it's either going to be the markets or the dollar. The Fed will have to decide. That is the corner they've painted themselves into. When it's going to happen, I have no idea. Nobody really does. But I do know that we are at all-time highs. Market met- metrics in terms of you know stocks being overbought, Uh, They're at similar levels to the dot-com bubble and the housing bubbles. We're in the longest-running economic expansion in terms of the technicals in history. Never gone this long without a recession. So if I were a betting man, I would say we're close. Uh, We're probably pretty close. But what does close mean? I don't know. Things like this next round of tax cuts and the inflation creation, these are more economic stimuli designed to mask the underlying problems in the economy. It would be one thing, like I said, if the government drastically cut the, the, the spending levels and the size of government, and, we, and then letting people keep more of their hard-earned money, that, that's great. That would be great. But if they're just going to go further into debt to afford the tax cuts now, if they're just going to pump more dollars into our already sick, bloated financial system, then that's just another injection of the poison into the patient, and eventually they will kill the economy. So uh, I'm going to wrap there. I guess that's just a long way of of saying that we should end the Fed, <laughs> that the Fed is an evil institution. It's at the root of all that is bad in our, our in economy. It just exacerbates uh, income inequality that everybody harps on. And no doubt there would be a level of, income inequality in a free market, but it would not be at these artificially high levels that you're seeing thanks to the Federal Reserve. All of the things that our government does that you don't like are only made possible by the Federal Reserve funding our federal government, creating money out of thin air, loaning it to our federal government to bomb countries overseas, to, to spend us into the poorhouse. It's all at the Fed, and that's why we need to end this evil institution. I hope I was able to clarify a lot of the um, financial news that you've been seeing and, and maybe explain some things, You know, sort of break them down Barney style for people who aren't interested in economics, who don't know a lot about this stuff. It's not as complicated as people want you to believe. But I hope that made sense to everybody, and I hope you were able to follow along and it wasn't too boring. Because this is all very relevant to your daily lives. And it's very important that you at least have a, a basic understanding of where we're headed as an economy, how we got here as an economy, uh, the, the government's role in all of this. Because when this shit hits the fan, they're going to be rolling out the government propaganda machine trying to tell you how this was all caused by greed on wall street and and republican tax cuts and deregulation when in reality government programs the central bank monetary policy they've been poisoning our financial system for decades and they've been trying to shield us from the ultimate effect of of all the drugs that they've been giving our economy for as long as possible So when this all blows up and all these politicians are promising that they have the solution to it, that we just need to do this and we just need to do that, at least now you'll have an understanding of what got us into this problem in the first place and the proper way to get us out of it. And I can guarantee you it's not going to come from the mouth of a politician. All right, so I'm going to wrap there. Guys, I know that you know somebody who needs to hear this episode. There are millions of people out there who still don't know what caused the 2008 financial crisis, who don't know how the Fed has been manipulating our markets for the last two decades, that that don't know any of this stuff, and it's going to affect their real daily lives. So do me a favor. Make sure you share this show with a couple people that you know, at least two people that you know, that that would like to hear it. And the other thing I need you to do is give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. A lot of people use that as a gauge for what they're going to listen to, and we need to get these episodes out to to the ears of more people. So if you enjoyed the show, give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And if you want to become a supporting member of the show, remember just go to pedalingfictionpodcast.com and you can do that from there. And if you can do all that, I will be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then, just remember to keep on pedaling that so-called fiction. Peace.